0: This week, we are continuing in our look at the book of Revelation. This was actually part of our Olivet Discourse. I gave you some overview of some major passages related to the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' exposition on future things, or Bible prophecy, or theologians call that, Eschatology. So, we want to look at the book of Revelation and just give you an overview of it. By the way, did I mention last week why I used that photograph? Okay. That's the way eschatology comes at us. In other words, if we're in its way, we're going to get run over. It kind of illustrates the sovereignty of God. Nothing's going to interfere with what God's planned, He has a plan. And the great thing is he's been pleased to reveal his plan to us. And what eschatology is all about is the end of that plan that no man knows, but God does because he has it in his plan. And it's going to come at us like an aircraft carrier. And we better be aligned on it or on the boat, on the ship, because it's got all of the firepower to accomplish everything that... God has intended and has revealed to us. So I consider the book of Revelation one of the most important books of the Bible. Last week, real quickly, we I gave you some background on the book, so we have an idea of what the situation was when Paul wrote this book, I mean uh, John rather, the Apostle John. I gave you reasons for John as the Apostle. I also use that occasion to kind of give you a little overview of what you do in apologetics and why we should prepare young people and even adults as well to be able to defend the faith, defend the Bible. We believe it is inerrant, in other words, without mistake, but we don't just pull that out of the air. There's lots of evidence, lots of scientific, a lot of philosophical, a lot of intellectual, a lot of historical evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is in fact the Word of God, inspired by God, and without error. And that includes every area of science and history and all other areas as well. So I used the occasion to kind of emphasize those that attack the Bible and even the book of Revelation specifically areas that we need to defend. So we looked at the Apostle John. The time frame, 1st century, towards the end of the 1st century, during a time of persecution. John is writing as a prisoner of the Roman Empire on a prison island called Patmos. I showed you some photographs of that. And the audience, we have clearly defined, and we'll look a little bit more at them, because chapters 2 and 3 are little letters to these churches. And I'll explain the best way to approach those letters. They're unique. They're different. They are letters in their uniqueness are from Jesus Christ himself. So letters from Christ. Now we have letters from Paul. We have letters from John. We have letters from Peter. We have a letter from James. The letters that are contained in the book of Revelation are from Jesus directly. Interesting. Interesting but we treat them similarly to we do the other letters of the, the Bible as well. So we have seven churches that are all in Asia Minor, and we'll look at them again. We ended by looking at the purpose of the book, and it's good to remind us why did John write this book. Now, he wrote it because God moved him to write it, as all of these writers of scriptures were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there are, particular purposes relating to that first century group or churches, but it also has application to us because it is inspired. Number one is this is a group of Christians that are persecuted. Some of them died for their faith. Many of them lost everything. Some of them lost their property. Some of them lost everything else. So they are persecuted Christians And one of the ways we can apply it today, we're not under persecution, but all of us experience different things that throw us off, if you will, make us perhaps have a cloudy idea as to what God may be doing, not only in the world, but in our lives. And if you suffer at all, the book of Revelation and prophetic literature in general is designed primarily for people that are under persecution, to give them a future hope. The Bible calls that a blessed hope. In Titus chapter 2, this is what Paul describes. The blessed hope is that plan that God has for the future for all those that know him. And it's blessed. In other words, it's an encouragement. And in, in time, over history, Christians have been able to endure all kinds of suffering, including persecution, and some even dying for their faith, Because they have the assurance that they are in the plan of God and they have a future. And the future is beyond this world. book of Revelation gives us the concluding part of that plan in order to give us that hope to be able to face anything that we might encounter in our present experience. It's prophetic. That's verse 3 of chapter 1. Reiterated in chapter 22, verse 7. So it gives us the future culmination of world history the final plan that God has. It has a secondary purpose of completing God's word and you see that in the last chapter particularly verses 18 and 19 it's a warning not to add or to subtract to the book itself and the principle in that is that it is complete in itself it it needs no addition, no changes no revising no sequels, no additions, because God is completing his canon of Scripture. And the principle uh, goes beyond the book of Revelation, and I think it seals Scripture for us. So that's part of its purpose. So we have all of the doctrines that were started in the book of, of Genesis brought to their culmination and their end, so that we have a complete revelation from God. So very important purpose of the book. So it gives us that biblical perspective that God wants us to have. So that's what we looked at last time. What I'd like to do today is give you very quickly some of the major characteristics of the book. And then once we do that, I want to give you a thumbnail sketch of the book. In other words, what is the book all about? We'll look at the content on that, depending on how much time we have left. We could actually do this in two more sessions, but... (laughs) We will complete it today. Power. Yep. So you got your seat bus, fashion your seat belt. Number one, I think one of the main characteristics of the book, I mentioned this earlier when I was introducing it two weeks ago, you could call it a fifth gospel because the focus of the book is Jesus Christ. What does verse one say? Somebody read that one of Jesus Christ, which God gave by his angel to the servant John. Okay, notice it's the revelation of what? Jesus. Jesus. Not what, but who? Jesus Christ. So this book is going to tell us things about Jesus Christ that are not revealed anywhere else. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling. And remember the four gospels give us a picture of the earthly. The human Jesus in his humanity. His deity is veiled to some extent in the Gospels. He gives us little glimpses of his deity through his miracles. He revealed himself in the transfiguration to three of the disciples where they had the glimpse of the glorified Jesus Christ. But in general, it's a picture of his humanity, his weakness, his suffering, his death. That's the four gospels. Now they give different snapshots, different perspectives. Matthew gives a Jewish perspective of Jesus as king, the sovereign Old Testament king that will reign in a kingdom. That's perspective of Matthew. Mark gives a different one, Luke a different one, John a different perspective. The book of Revelation, you could say, is a fifth gospel, and it gives us a picture of the resurrected Christ. And much of what we have in the book of Revelation is, is given in different forms in other places, but he puts it together, and together it gives us something of a fifth gospel. And in that, we could say that we have something of a complete Christology why I use the word, another theological term, a Christology of Jesus Christ. So if you study the book of Revelation, you're going to have a perspective on Jesus Christ. And you see that in, there are many names. Some of the names, he's called Jesus Christ, he's called Jesus, he's called Christ, he's called Lord, he's called Lord Jesus, he's called Messiah. All of these are in the book of Revelation. Not only are there a lot of names that describe him in phrases, but there's these titles as well. In fact, I've got a whole list of them here. I think I've got over 22 different titles that I have counted that are different, some of them repeated from other places, but some of them are unique, that describe the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he's called a faithful witness. Also in chapter 1, he's the firstborn of the dead. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Di- different titles. Ruler, firstborn, faithful. He's the Alpha and the Omega. These are all just in chapter 1. First and the last. The Almighty. Son of Man. That was his favorite title. It's also in the book of Revelation. The Living One. Another title. That one's also in chapter 1. Chapter 2, Son of God. Now that's in the Gospels, repeated in the book of Revelation. The Amen, that's in chapter 3. He's called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, another title. And if you count them all up, I've got a list of 22. And remember last time I mentioned the one that is used the most frequently. Does anybody remember that one? The Lamb, he's called the Lamb different titles that I just gave you. And then there's kind of extended descriptions as well. And some of these are somewhat unique as well. He's called the one who loves us. He's the one that has released us from our sins by his blood. A longer phrase that describes him. He's made us a kingdom of priests. He is coming with clouds. All of these descriptions And I've got at least 37 of them that I've counted in the book of Revelation. He is one that is standing as if slain, a description of of Jesus Christ. And the one that is used the most often, the title at least, is the Lamb. It occurs 28 times in just the book of Revelation. And if you remember when I mentioned last time that this phrase, the reason it's common, because it ties us to Jesus of the Gospels. It's the same Jesus. This is the way John the Baptist introduced Jesus. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Same Lamb in the book of Revelation, but now he is the glorious Lamb, the Lamb that is resurrected. It occurs 28 times in the book of Revelation. So, a complete Christology. The emphasis of the four Gospels is his humanity. The emphasis of the book of Revelation is his deity. In fact, we have visions of God the Father. We have visions of Jesus Christ. And sometimes you can't tell the difference because the emphasis is Christ in his full deity, the glorified Jesus Christ. So we have something of a complete Christology. We also have a close tie the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Genesis. In fact, what God began in the book of Genesis in creation, there are a lot of allusions in the book of Revelation that God is going to restore what was lost as a result of the first sin, all and even more. God is going to restore everything from the garden and more. It's going to be even more glorious than the original creation. There's a new heavens and a new earth. Chapter 21. New heavens and a new earth. It's restored. It refers to the tree of life. The tree of life will be there. It speaks of a river of life. And in the garden, there were rivers that came out of the garden. It speaks of other things as well. So there's a tie to the Old Testament. And then there are a lot of allusions and, and uh, references to... Passages in the Old Testament, most of them are not quoted, most of them are simply alluded to. So lots of allusions. In fact, allusion after allusion, some of those titles that I gave you are are some of those allusions to Jesus Christ that you find in the Old Testament, like the, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. That goes all the way back to Genesis as well. So several allusions, some of those Titles of deity, they come from the Old Testament. So a close tie to the Old Testament. In fact, the better you understand the Old Testament, the better you understand the rest of the Bible, the better you'll be in a position to be able to understand the book of Revelation because so many things come from the Old Testament. Not only the book of Genesis, but the book of Daniel. A lot of the imagery comes out of the book of Daniel as well. So you have illusions, deity titles, uh, you have geography, Babylonianism, for example, or Babylon, the great, comes out of the Old Testament. In fact, it goes all the way to Babel. So it kind of gives you a summary of a lot of things that you'll study when you study the Old Testament. So a great use of the Old Testament. A lot of Old Testament characters are referenced and mentioned Uh, even to the seven churches, Jezebel in the time of Ahab, King Ahab in the Old Testament, others as well. So characters that are drawn from the Old Testament and obviously Old Testament concepts. In fact, I believe all eschatology is what? Jewish. Very good. All eschatology is Jewish. That that pertains to the church fits within a Jewish eschatology. The chronology, the time frame, is Jewish. So those things that belong to the church in terms of the future fit within the Jewish chronology, within the the Jewish setting. So we have a lot of settings that come out of the Old Testament, out of uh, Judaism itself. So a heavy emphasis on the Old Testament Another thing that is very important, another characteristic, is the emphasis on worship. And there's no greater book that elicits worship than probably the book of Revelation. Because it shows us Jesus and his glory, and it almost knocks you off your feet. If you really absorb what is being revealed, you can't even imagine. In fact, John doesn't have the words to even describe some of the visions. He has to use similes. In other words, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. In other words, there's nothing in our experience to describe the resurrected Jesus. So you have to use imagery. That's why you have a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation. He uses a lot of similes, a lot of comparisons so that we have some reference to be able to to visualize. But if you get a full glimpse of it, It'll knock you over in worship. So that's one of the major thrusts and emphasis of the book of Revelation. The priority and the emphasis on on worship. There are several visions and scenes, heavenly scenes, and you have continuous worship. And you have worship brought about in different ways. So we have a whole theology, if you will, of worship. You can study worship just from the book of Revelation. You have emphasis on those that worship. You have angelic creatures. You have four living beings, whatever they are. They're probably angelic creatures of a different rank. They are worshipers. We have angels that worship. We have saints that worship that are called out specifically. You have some that are unidentified. We don't even know who they are. John doesn't have words to describe them other than the way that he places them in the biblical text. And theologians debate as to what is going on in some of those passages, but they're worshiping, they're worshipers. More than likely angelic creatures. And there's also warnings concerning some that do not worship. There are unbelievers that do not. In fact, they raise their fists up to God as well. So the emphasis on worship and those that worship him. So those are the worshipers. In fact, there are some... Hymns that were probably utilized in early church history that come out of the book of Revelation. They're worshipful hymns. Words directly out of the text that were used in worship services in the early church. And we have a whole theme of worship throughout the book. So lots of worship. So that's your little background and characteristics of the book. So we have three major characteristics, emphasis on Jesus Christ, Christology, emphasis on the Old Testament, and then thirdly, emphasis on worship. Now there's other characteristics as well, if we had more time we could look into them. But let's spend the rest of the time looking at an outline, and I've given you an outline on the back side of the outline sheet, so if you haven't picked up an outline sheet, go ahead and get one there, you got the last one there. Okay, a simple outline. You can divide the book into three parts. Three major divisions. Division number one is a revelation from the very first verse. Revelation of Jesus Christ among the seven churches. So I see the first three chapters as making up the first division. And there's a lot of Kind of relationships between all three of the chapters. Tie them together. Chapters 1 through 3. And secondly, the next major division, 4 through 18. In other words, the bulk of the book is prophetic. Starting in chapter 4, this projects us into the future. In spite of some of the other ways that people interpret the book, I take chapter 4 through 18 as primarily prophetic. Prophetic. Now, in our first session at the beginning of last week, I gave you some different approaches, different ways of interpreting the book. I think the most biblical one is the approach that we take it more literally. And if you take it from a more literal approach, you'll see that chapter 4 through 18 is a look ahead into the future. All right? And a major issue is tribulation, the great tribulation. Now, Paul didn't just come up with that idea. But, I mean, John, I keep referring to Paul because I'm used to (laughs) teaching on Paul. John didn't just pull that out of the sky. This is a theme that deals with the nation of Israel that goes all the way back to before the nation even existed. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses predicts Even before Israel is a nation. Remember, they're still in the wilderness when the book of Deuteronomy is written. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses predicts basically an outline of Jewish history. That's why eschatology is Jewish. He speaks of a degeneration after the people of Israel become a nation. And he even talks about a captivity, Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30. He's talking about even a captivity. He talks about a regathering after repentance, and then he talks about a period of tribulation before the Messiah arrives. That's Jewish eschatology. The book of Revelation gives us the most detail of anywhere in the Bible on that period of time. In fact, the book of Revelation gives us the time frame. It's two three-and-a-half-year periods, and it's tied to the book of Daniel. It's a last week of Jewish history. Some people refer to it as Daniel's 70th week. Chapters 4 through 18 deal with that period of time. Now, when we were studying the Olivet Discourse, I mentioned that the Olivet Discourse Jesus is speaking to Jewish disciples and he's giving them Jewish eschatology. Remember our stress in that. Well, we have the same stress in the book of Revelation. In fact, there's parallels and we drew some of those when we were in the Olivet Discourse. So he's describing this period of time. It's a horrendous period of time. A period of judgment that precedes the coming of Israel's Messiah. So what do you expect in chapter 19 and following? Messiah, exactly. And not only what we have in chapter 19, the coming of Messiah, but what he's going to do, he's going to consummate all of history. He's going to bring history to its culmination. He's going to establish that kingdom that all Jewish people anticipated in Old Testament time. People hope for and for century time. Jewish people today are pretty fuzzy about it as to what happened to it. The New Testament makes clear that it is yet future, and one of the books that does that is the book of Revelation. So that's the rest of the book, nineteen through twenty two. That's God's plan. That's Jewish eschatology. Alright? So on a chart, here's all of the book of Revelation on one slide. And I'll give you a quick overview, and then as much time as we've got, we'll look at some of the detail. All right? First of all, chapter 1, and i got a arrow here. Let's look at verse uh, 19 in chapter 1. Somebody read that verse. Because I think Jesus gives us a little bit of an outline of the book of Revelation. This is Jesus' outline. Who's got it? Write down what you have seen. Both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. Okay. Do you notice three things there? A three part outline. What's the first part? What is John to do? He's supposed to, he's to, to write down something. And what is he supposed to do? things you've seen. The things you have seen. Now, verse 19 comes after a vision that John had. And what is that vision? It's a vision of of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So, and Jesus is speaking here. It's red letters in my Bible. I've got a red letter edition. So, Jesus is speaking here, instructing John to write the things that you have seen. In other words, the vision. Write it down. I know you're going to have a hard time with the words, but do the best you can to write it down. So, he's to write the things that he has seen. That's essentially chapter 1. What's the next phrase in there? The things that are, or how was your version there, Craig? Things that are now. The things that are now. What's going on now? When John is writing, what was going on then? In other words, what major thing concerning what God is doing on earth? The things that are going on now. Church age. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the seven churches, seven representative churches in the first century. So I think that, that's chapters 2 and 3, pertain to the church age. And then what does he say? The third part of the division? Okay. That will happen. Okay, that will happen. Or the things which shall take place after these things. What things? The things that are. The things that are going on now. In other words, during the church age. So what he's saying is write down the things that are going to be prophetic from the church age. In other words, after the church age. Now turn to chapter 4 and look at verse 1. Somebody read it and notice the similarity in language there. Who's got it? After this I looked and there in heaven was the first voice that I had. Come up here and I will show you what must after, and my version says, after these things. Exact phrase as we have in verse 19. And notice it starts and ends. At the very beginning of the verse, it says, after these things. In other words, after the things that took place in chapter 2 and 3, after the church age. So they're prophetic, they're future. At least that's the way I understand it. So everything from chapter 4 on is after the end of the church age, we don't know when a an event that will be the last event of the church age will take place. We don't know when that will be. But if you know other prophetic scriptures, it predicts that the church is going to be taken out. Anybody remember one of the main passages there that describes the rapture of the church? We described that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, Jesus predicted this. Does anyone know where Jesus predicted this? Nope. Nope. John 14, in the upper room. Remember that? Okay, he predicts that he will depart, and then he will take us to be with him. That's actually the first revelation concerning that period of time. 1 Corinthians 15 also describes that. Talks about resurrection. That ends the church age. You remember when we were in the Albed Discourse, I said that sometime after the rapture, there may be a little gap of time in there, when the the clock starts ticking again. The Jewish clock begins to tick, and then there's a seven-year period of time. It's called Daniel's 70th week. Clearly spelled out. It's emphasized in the book of Revelation. It's two three-and-a-half-year periods of time. In other words, a seven-year tribulation. Now chapters 4 through 11 is a description of that period of time. The emphasis is primarily events. And there are judgments, but there's other events that take place in that time frame. Kind of parallel with that, chapters 12 through 18 primarily focuses on persons that will be involved during that period of time, or personages, you might say. You have a dragon. You have a man-child. You have a woman, described in chapter 12. You have a beast. You have a second beast. You have angelic creatures. The emphasis is these personages from chapters 12 through 18. Not entirely. There's a few events in there as well. But that's kind of the emphasis of those chapters. And this period of time, in fact, it divides it several times in half. In the book of Revelation, sometimes John takes from the book of Daniel. Daniel describes a time, singular, times, duo in the Hebrew, which is a plural, but it refers to two. So you have three and a half, a time. It's the way Daniel describes it. You find that little phrase in the book of Revelation as well. John also uses... 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years in days. And in in another place, he refers to it as 42 months. How many is 42 months? Three and a half years. So it keeps repeating that little phrase that refers to the three and a half. Daniel tells us that something very significant takes place in the middle. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse tells us he refers to that that took place in the middle. So we can kind of divide it into two parts. And the book of Revelation does the same as well. So we can identify where some things take place based on these little notes that you can put them together. So there's going to be a seven year period of time. I see the seal judgments in chapter 6 as a panoramic view of the seven years. And the reason I see that is because the sixth seal seems to take place uh, just before the second coming of Christ. Because you have a lot of parallel passages where you have stars falling from heaven and all these astrophysical phenomenon and things on earth, earthquakes, all kinds of things coming together just before the second coming. And you see that in the sixth seal. And then I see trumpet judgments, chapters 8 and 9, somewhere. And where they start, it's not real clear. The book of Revelation doesn't make clear. But we have a set of judgments that are called seven of them, seven trumpet judgments. And it seems everything is just totally falling apart. Now you have bowl judgments in chapter 16. And I think you have some parallels between the three. So you have three Three major sets of judgments that are described in the Book of Revelation. Very horrendous things happening on on the planet Earth. Purpose of all of this? There's a twofold purpose. Anyone know the number one purpose? <laughs> to do what? Give was... Nope. <laughs> Not the sins of the Israel. <laughs> no. Say that again. Turn Israel back to God. That's the main purpose. All of these things are going to work together to awaken Jewish people and the nation as a whole to their need for a Messiah. The book of Deuteronomy speaks of it. All of the Old Testament speaks of this period of time, and it's designed to bring Israel to faith. And Paul says in Romans 11, all of Israel shall be saved. That is the time frame when all of Israel shall be saved. The book of Revelation describes that. It begins with two prophets. We'll talk about that. I'll get to that in chapter 11. And then those two prophets, uh, there'll be 144,000 Jewish people that believe. And then from them, they will present the gospel to the world. So that's the only hope. That's the purpose of this period of time. The second purpose is almost something like a cleansing of the earth. It's a judgment of the earth. So that the whole earth is also prepared for the coming of Messiah. So there's very severe judgments. And then chapter 19, we have the coming of Messiah. In other words, the picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 20 deals with after Jesus comes, all Jews expected when Messiah arrived the millennial kingdom, or a kingdom. John tells us it's millennial. Chapter 20. Satan is bound at the beginning, and then there's a kingdom. And then chapters 21 and 22, I think, are a picture of the new heavens and a new earth, which I think is what we normally or generally refer to as heaven or the eternal state, eternity. So there you have in one slide the entire book of Revelation. So we have the revelation of Jesus Christ among the churches. First part, we have a prologue. We don't have time to look at it, but it's something of an introduction to the whole book. The emphasis is Jesus Christ, as is the whole book. First eight verses, you have a prologue and a benediction. Then you have a vision of Jesus Christ, chapters 9 through 20. That's the things that John saw, past tense. And it's a vision of the resurrected Christ. And then chapters 2 and 3 are letters from that resurrected Christ. Each one of them is introduced with little phrases that come from that vision. From the one that has the eyes of a flaming fire, etc. Each one of these seven letters. Now you can take each of these letters much like you would take all of the other letters of the New Testament. Like Philippians or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These were letters that were addressed to a particular people in the first century. They had certain things that were characteristic about them, problems that were characteristic of them, that particular church. But because it's inspired, we can read the book of Philippians today and draw application for us today. So also can you do with these seven letters. But they are written to particular groups of people, and I think they're selected because I think they're representative of what churches throughout church history would would also have in terms of characteristics and, and issues as well. So we can draw from all seven of them and find application to us today. So let me give you a real quick rundown, and I've got far more here. I'm going to go over this real quickly so we can get to the end. Here's Patmos. Here's where John is, that little island. the middle of the Aegean. This is Turkey, present day Turkey, Asia Minor in the Bible. It's called Asia. And the seven churches are all located right there. The first one is Ephesus, which is located about right there. Actually, it's inland, right in this area there. That's the letter to the church at Ephesus. Same church that Paul writes to, Ephesians. They receive a personal letter from Jesus Christ. Ephesus, just to give you a feel for what it looks like, what it looked like, Uh, about five years ago I visited all these churches, and some of these are my photographs, some of them I purchased, but Ephesus is one of the most developed archaeological sites anywhere in the world. They've uncovered much of first century Ephesus, so we have a feel for it, they worshipped, The people there, not the believers, but the believers had to interact with people that worshipped the emperors. So they have a temple, to Hadrian. Now that was obviously later in their history. So you have a temple there. Here's one of the main streets in Ephesus. It was a cultural center. So at the end there is the Library of Celsus. And you can walk this today if you visit Ephesus today. Uh, Most of this dates to... First century, and some of this even before that. There's a closer shot of the structure there. Notice the people in front. Gives you a perspective. Those doors are totally out of scale. See the people right in front there? That dates to first century. Another street there by a smaller theater. There's a small theater. One of the characteristics of major cities in the ancient world is they all have a theater. This is a tiny one. In comparison, all kinds of things would take place. Political speeches, orations, plays, athletic events. So very common. Now there's a bigger one. This is the biggest known theater in the ancient world. Seated, they estimate, 25,000 people. Bigger than the pit. A lot bigger. There was a harbor in that brown area that's, that's dirt now. It's all silted in, but large ships used to come. In fact, that was the economy. It was based on basically uh, shipping and trade that came all over. And then from Ephesus, it would go inland. So it was a seaport in ancient times. The city died out because it got silted in. That's the Appian Way that's referred to in the Bible. And you can't... I should have given you a better shot of that theater. This is from the top, but it's a huge thing. So the Appian Way would have gone to the harbors Yes, just take everything out, and that was their I-25 that went out Yeah, out. yeah, exactly. Very good. The characteristic of Ephesus, this is the Temple of Artemis, which was dates to the first century. It was one of the seven wonders of the world in that time. Uh, that column there it kind of re constituted, it's not even remade, but there were, I can't remember, a hundred and, I don't remember, like 60 of those columns, and they're six stories high. That was the Temple of Artemis, huge thing, and you see they uncovered the foundation stones all along it, it was a huge thing, I can't remember the dimensions. Characteristic of Ephesus, it lost its first love, so that's the first letter. The next one is in the present-day city of Ishmir, which is a large city I'll show you in a moment, Smyrna, That's present-day Shmirna. There's the archaeological site. And when I visited there, uh, just to the top there between, it's kind of a fuzzy picture, that's a lot, that's fog. That dark area on the top is actually the Aegean Sea there. And I stayed in a little, if you want to call it a hotel, I don't know it was... Eight dollars worth. <laughs> uh, just on the coast there, just on the top. There's a closer shot of the archaeological remains, and obviously the ancient city would have been quite more extensive. But it's underneath the buildings that have been built there, and these are just some shots of the site itself. And these date to the first century as well. Things they've come from uh, the site archaeologically. The gods they worship the gods. Different gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, Poseidon. Now these are dated to the second century, but it's pretty close to the first century. Agora, that's the, that's the Windrock Center or the Coronado Center. Marketplace, another shot of it. Worship the gods, Athena, Greek gods. This is a persecuted church. This is a suffering church. That's the main characteristic. Then we have Pergamum. We'll go a little bit more rapidly on this. This is another well-developed archaeological site. Very impressive, actually. This is from, uh, the Acropolis that overlooks this Caicos River Valley. Beautiful area. This is on top. North Stoa. That's shopping area, library. There's another theater there. What was that? and What does that mean? Probably a medical facility. I'm not sure. I don't remember. There's a theater. And this is a well preserved theater. This is smaller than the one at Ephesus. That's a Google Earth shot of the Acropolis up there where they would put temples. And then the first century city would have been down in this lower area. And I'll show you what that looks like. There's a theater. That's a fairly large one. And this is where the city down below would be, the Acropolis up there. And notice that theater. See it on the side of the hill there? That's this theater. Okay? Yeah, it's huge. And see the temples up there? I'll show you some close-ups of them. There you go. Trajan Temple. So the Emperor Trajan had a temple devoted to him. And notice the well preserved and reconstructed archaeological artifacts there. Another shot, same thing. It's kind of like driving into a city and seeing the football stages. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. They had a, an altar to Zeus and Bergama is the present day city down below. That's what you can see down below. But they had a huge... This is this was a, an impressive temple as well. In fact, most of the the best remains are in a Berlin Museum. I've got photographs of them. But that's where it was. This is a worldly church. Jesus condemns this church and calls upon them to repent. Pergamum. This is probably the order that a messenger would have taken these messages to these seven churches or the whole book to these churches. Thyatira, inland. There's not much there to see. Just kind of scattered... Pieces that people have excavated so I don't have a whole lot on it There's nothing reconstructed it's an apostate church now this is the church of St. John this is in Byzantine time this is much later on the same site the apostate church that's the major characteristic it has departed basically from God's word so Thyatira and then Sardis further inland And this is the site here, or the main site. Part of the site is on this Acropolis. Also, photograph is from the Acropolis. I didn't take that one; I purchased that one. This is from the Acropolis. Another temple of Artemis. The shot there, dating to before first century, actually. And those theaters would be all those theaters would be be before first century because they're Greek theaters. Built by Romans and Greeks before. There's a gymnasium. Lots of athletics there. Again, they probably rode bikes. (laughs) That's a dead church. Dead church. That's a major characteristic. Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania. Philadelphia of the first century. There's not much to see there. This is looking from another Acropolis that would have been city. It's unexcavated, so... I think if you excavated in this area, you might find some more artifacts. There's not much to see there. The city's built up over it. There is a Byzantine missionary church located in the city there on the same site, probably. You can tell Byzantine, the small bricks, and then Laodicea further south. And Colossae, by the way, is in this area right there, so very close to Colossae. And bridge on the way to Laodicea, that dates the first century. And I showed you these last week. They had a water system. Jesus describes them as what? Lukewarm, the cold, fresh, good water came from the the mountains of Colossae. But they also had a water supply from Hierapolis. It was hot water. So by the time the hot water got to Laodicea, it had cooled down and it was lukewarm. By the time the cold water got from the mountains to Laodicea, it was also, it was warmed up and it was lukewarm. This is a lukewarm church. Bathhouse, gymnasiums, another large theater you can see on the side there. Not well preserved or reconstructed. It's a lukewarm church. So those are the characteristics. So those are chapters two and three. Great Tribulation. Let me give you a real quick overview of the Great Tribulation. Four through seven, focus on this seven scroll book. Seven scroll book. Chapters four and five are a heavenly vision where no one can open this book. John cries, he's very depressed. This is a very important book. Probably it is the title deed to the universe. And no one can open it. Chapter 5 except one. Because there's only one sinless one. Jesus Christ is the only one that can open that book. So he comes forward. Chapter 6. We have the opening of that scroll. And it has seven seals on it. So he opens them one at a time. And in the opening it's, a, it's judgment that falls on the earth. So chapters 4 and 5 are a heavenly scene. Chapter 6 are things that take place on the earth. Seal judgments. Six of them, first of all. And then after, well, chapter 7 is the only bright spot in the whole book of Revelation. That's where you have the conversion of 144,000 that go out and evangelize the rest of the world. And then there's a multitude from every nation. The greatest revival that the world will ever see will take place during that seven-year period. That's the only bright spot. Everything else is judgment. Judgment. Uh, The seal judgments are, I think, a panorama of the whole seven years. The trumpet judgments, there may be some that start in the first three and a half, but I think the bulk of them are in the second three and a half. And all of them may be. We don't have a chronology tied to them. So we have seven trumpet judgments. They're more intense. They're more severe. In fact, some of them are similar to the plagues of Egypt. And what God is saying, if I can bring plagues on a localized region like Egypt, I can do it on the whole world. And these are universal. These are worldwide. And the scope of them are unbelievable. In fact, one of the seal judgments, a third of all of humanity is killed. And then we have another judgment later on where another quarter of all of the populations is, is killed. If you add the two, it doesn't matter the number, you end up with a half of all of the world is destroyed. If it happened today, it would be like, what, four billion people perish during that period of time. And those are just two judgments, and they're given specifically. So we have trumpet judgments. Then we have the heavenly explanation, chapters 12 through 14. And then we have the final plagues, chapters 15 through 18. And the focus of those are bowl judgments. And then we have 17 and 18, a judgment of Babylon. What's Babylon? Babylon is the world system that began at Babel, has poked its head out over history. Babylon is epitomized by the Babylonian Empire that destroyed the nation of Israel. But it would include world empires that have been anti-God. And there's going to be one final world empire that's going to be destroyed in chapter 17 and 18. Headed by the beast of chapter 13. And there's a second beast as well. We call him Antichrist. Just a thumbnail sketch of what takes place. There's going to be a covenant that starts it. The seven years, two prophets, 144,000, great conversions, persecution. Many of the Christians will die during that period of time. The abomination that makes desolate, that's Je- uh, Revelation 13. And the seal judgment, trumpet judgments, roll judgments are going on during this whole time. Babylon falls, this is a future Babylon. I take it literally, Armageddon. That's described in chapter 16. And then chapters 19 through 22, consummation, second coming, chapter 19, millennial kingdom, chapter 20. A lot of this is on your outline sheet where Jesus rules for a thousand years. And I take it literally, John emphasizes it, he mentions it six times, thousand years in chapter 20 there. And then chapters 21 through the end of the book, after an epilogue, we have eternal state or heaven. Let me just mention one thing here. During the millennial kingdom, you and I will be there in resurrected bodies. There's going to be spiritual beings in resurrected bodies. It'll include the church. The church is not in that seven-year period. The church is raptured. We come back with Christ. We will reign with Christ a thousand years. There will also be Old Testament saints. It'll be in resurrected bodies. There will be people that walk in that seven-year period that survive that seven-year period that are believers. They will live in mortal bodies. They will have babies during the millennial kingdom. Some of them will die during that millennial kingdom. Christ will reign over them. We will have a part in that. So there will be mortal people, living Israelites that survived the tribulation. They're believers, all the nation of Israel. They will be prominent. And living nations, or Gentiles. And then there's a prologue. So there's your book of Revelation. One application we can draw, how you live today, how faithful you are to your the Lord Jesus Christ today will determine the position that you will occupy during the Millennial Kingdom and the responsibilities that you'll be given or the privileges of responsibilities during the Millennial Kingdom. You can serve in the cabinet of Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. Closing thought, we can live confident and fearless knowing the outcome of our Lord's plan for all of history. And that's it. But the revelation gives it to us. Depending on your faithfulness today. Who wants to close? With? Bill. Father God, we're just really grateful that you chose to reveal your, that you show, chose to to give us a, a glimpse of Christ and plans for eternity. Thank you for the confidence, for the encouragement, for stirring us. Would you hold spirit to bring glory to the Father's name? Amen.